the second leg of this Wrestling City road trip is underway as we present to you part two of the famous wrestling cities in professional wrestling history. Joining me once again, an individual who has been up and down the highways many a times in the world of professional wrestling, my cousin Wild Bill Brown. Thanks for coming back. Hey, let's go back on the road. I'm ready to go. It was a good ride the first time. You're a good driver. Oh, thank you very much. And you were a, a, a damn good co-pilot yourself. You know, you where I got lost, you 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 helped me. You know, get back on the road and back on the right track here. And uh, like we said in our first episode, uh, you know, there were a lot of memories of New York City. Probably having the most. Uh, memorable moments in wrestling history, uh, not just with moments, but also the different venues. We talked about Hammerstein and and, and Barclays and the Garden. Um, so I, I thought we'd kick this road trip off back in New York City. We're going to start in New York this time around and uh, discuss uh, just some memories of you know some of the most memorable moments in in you know wrestling history. So uh, you know, w- would you like to kick it off? Would you like me to 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 start things here or? Well, we can start off, uh, Madison Square Garden was pretty much where you're going to start any kind of uh, memories of, of New York wrestling, yep. and it started with the first ever generation of McMahons as promoter, and uh, it, it went on from, I believe, the 20s, am I not mistaken? Is it that early? Because I think I've seen footage me, of the 1920s Wow. from uh, the Garden, so... Uh, things have developed, 40s, 50s. Of course, the footage is, is not out there, but we've been learning and reading, and I've done my history on stuff. The 60s is when the Garden had really become uh, important because Bruno Sammartino won the WWF championship yep. from Buddy Rogers, who was the NWA champion prior to that, but they had made a... A, a defection. They they wanted Rogers as their champion, so they kind of took him from their company. Yep. And they made Bruno beat him, and that spawned eight years of title changes of title matches. Excuse me, of Bruno in the Garden from 1963 to 1971, selling out the building to to my recollection, as they would say, and then you find out later in his Hall of Fame when they talked about all his sellouts, how many times he had done it. From 1963 to 1971, a solid eight-year run wow. as a champion, um, drawing the Italian audience. Yes. And uh, from there, when, when Bruno had gotten tired and needed time off, because after eight years, I mean, he really is a family guy, and he had kids, and he wanted to kind of see some of that. He uh, he took a little hiatus, and they went with Ivan Koloff. Yes. And we're going to talk about this for a second, if you don't mind. Oh, but absolutely. That matchup was... Um, yeah, unexpected at the time to to see a title change ever. Nobody, yeah. nobody believed that Superman would ever lose. And the you know you watch some movie and your hero never loses in the end. And everybody believed Bruno was always going to win. He always did. Yep. He brought brought in Ivan Koloff from Russia, as he was uh, as said, and he jumped off the top rope with a knee, I believe, into Bruno's chest, went on top of him. And just got the one, two, three. Very anticlimactic. The, if and you've heard the story, I'm sure. Yep. Because Bruno had uh, shared it many times, but the first time that the the garden for a result had ever gone silent like that, Bruno thought he was deaf. He didn't hear nothing. That the fans were in disbelief, and then they started getting upset and crying, and yeah. they they kind of pushed Ivan out of there really quickly, and 
Bruno just felt disappointed after like he had let him down. So that that was a unbelievable moment to be in the garden. I, I could not imagine if I was ever in there what I would feel. Uh, some people were there, and I don't know if they'd ever you know experienced and shared that you know with anybody else. But that's just uh, you don't see that or hear about any of that stuff in professional wrestling. Nobody is that jaw dropped anymore. And uh, Bruno is a, a cultural icon to everybody, and to see that happen, that happened in New York. So, yeah, I mean, big. he's he's the, he's the hometown kid, and you know, not even a kid, but the hometown guy. Yeah. Uh, you know, like you said, eight years, a solid eight years, where he's defending the title in New York at the Garden, selling out the Garden every month for 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 you know eight years, eight and years. he's undefeated, and then he goes up against Ivan Koloff and you know most of those fans I'm sure if not all those fans in the building that night probably thought oh it's just another win for Bruno and then they see that you know obviously that wasn't the case and you know like you said like nowadays you don't see things like that anymore because everyone has seen everything in wrestling as a, as a fan you know we've seen it all in, in many respects and at that time you didn't see it all so it was it was definitely a shock um, something that you know like you, I I don't know what I would have felt, you know, watching that sitting in the building. The closest thing to that for me as a fan was when we were in New Orleans for WrestleMania in 2014 when Brock Lesnar broke the Undertaker streak. Exactly. That was probably, and I'll talk about that when we touch upon New Orleans in a little bit. But that's probably the my that's like the equivalent, you know, and in terms of the sure was the, yes. the, the shock factor. Um, but yeah, New York City, like you said, Bruno, like that was his home. Um, the Garden definitely was his home. I mean, we talked about in our previous episode, um, you know, the WrestleManias that had taken place in Madison Square Garden and um, some of the more memorable moments. Uh, let's talk about the curtain call in 1996 with the click. Um, a moment that. I wouldn't say change the business. Well, yeah, I guess you could say it changed the business in, in, in some regards where, you know, you saw reality come to life in front of you. Um, and at the time, you know, for those of you unaware or, you know, need a little memory refresher, the, the, the click was a, a group behind the scenes in the, in the WWF and in the 90s of Shawn Michaels, uh, Big Daddy Cool Diesel, known as Kevin Nash, uh, Scott Hall, who was Razor Ramon, Triple H, and X-Pac. And uh, the five of them were a, a very tight-knit unit behind the scenes, having each other's backs and um, really politically lobbying to, uh, you know, kind of take over. Over the, the landscape of the WWF, or so they say. And uh, it was Diesel and Razor's last night in the garden in May of 1996. They were going to go to WCW, and the main event was Sean and Diesel in a cage for the title. And at the end of the match, uh, Razor Ramon and Triple H made their way into the ring, and they all embraced and acknowledged each other. And as they say in the business, they broke kayfabe in front of the audience. And it was like a cardinal sin at the time. Uh, talk to me about your thoughts and memories of the infamous curtain call from the click. Well, luckily, footage had surfaced of that. Yes. People had uh, one guy. I think only one guy has this footage. I've never seen any other version of it. Yep. But uh, this guy captured that moment from a spot and the reactions from everybody around holy shit yeah and 
if that wasn't there and you just read about it and seen a few pictures, it might have been a little more anticlimactic. It might have not. Well, I can't believe that happened, but you know, well, it happened. That's what it says. Yep. But it's a vision that we've seen forever. We've seen it on documentaries. We've heard it in their interviews. Um, it broke ground. It it something that should have not happened. It, yeah. <laughs> a wrestling fan was not expecting to see opponents. Uh, too sweet each other on their way out and uh you know for some of those fans that did know that these guys were in fact leaving and this was their goodbye and their last show um you know and we, i was one of them i i knew but i would never expect on the last night that they would risk uh, all that and then you looked at people like Shawn michaels and and hunter who are staying in the promotion and and what a reprimand, you know, what what are repercussions for for doing such a thing now? And I think Triple H kind of found out about it yeah, a little bit. He was holding the bag, yeah. The King of the Ring was supposed to be his that year, and uh, that didn't happen. Yeah, that was one of the promises that was coming up with this powerful click that was that was in the the promotion. He was he was going to win that tournament. Yep, that did not happen. Um, you couldn't punish Sean because he had the belt. So he did they, the next yeah. best thing. He dated Stephanie and got got back to where he needed to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he formed his own little clique, so to speak. Uh, but what a moment, you know, and that's something that uh, for those live, and, I, you know, I'm not one of those people, but I wish we knew somebody that could tell us about it. Uh, they, it was a, you know, oh, my God moment. Had it happened that. anywhere else, do you think it would have had as big of an impact? Do you, uh, think, if, do you think New York City helped? New York City helped, but I think that if it, if it was taped, Anywhere in the footage you got out, it could have possibly, as a last uh, night, it could have possibly been almost as big. Wow. But I don't think as big. I mean, could you just imagine seeing, it didn't, It never happened anywhere. You would never see that. Yeah. So if that had gotten out, the same footage, just a different venue, I still think that it still would have held up a little bit. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was, uh, I, I remember... Growing up and seeing the pictures in the magazines, not the, the WWF magazines, but the Bill After mags and the, the Pro Wrestling Illustrateds and things like that. And um, that was like my real first exposure before I had um, realized what the Internet was and that there was, you know, uh, dirt sheets and you know, message boards and news and rumor sites on what's going on behind the scenes. And that was like that was my first inkling of. I mean, I knew it was predetermined. Don't get me wrong. I knew that, you know, it was a show. But that was my first inkling that there was, like, there was a different world that you could access information regarding wrestling. You know, it wasn't what you just saw on the television. And, like I said, those those pictures came up in the after mags. And then I think not too long after that, I want to say it was probably, like, a few months after that is when I was just browsing online. And I think I, like, tried to look for WWF.com on AOL. And then I stumbled upon, um, which is still up to, uh, still a page I, I frequent to stay, 411 uh, yes. Wrestling, uh, which they're, they're pretty uh, consistent with their news. Um, that was the first wrestling news site I had ever stumbled upon. And then I obviously, you know, it, it spawned off and, you know, has, has grown ever since. Uh, one, of, one of the more controversial moments to take place inside Madison Square Garden. Here's an interesting fact, and you might know this. Um, doing some research on this show and especially on the, the subject of New York City and its impact in professional wrestling. Did you know that in early 1993, WCW ran a live event at the Garden? Not in the garden. It was in. It was in, in the the, uh, the felt form. In the form, yeah. yes. Yeah. So, and, uh, AAA, I believe, ran 
in the felt form back in the yep. day too. Yeah. So yeah, but that's as close as they could get. Yeah. Um, the stronghold was there. Um, the closest they could move is Metal Hands or Nassau to, to get into the New York market. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, they did run that area. The, yeah. There was five. I think they had it set up for five thousand fans. Yeah, because from uh, it was a. Um... It was an episode of uh, 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff, and it was right before Bischoff had, I believe, gotten power in the company. He was still an announcer, and uh, they they drew 2,500 people, I want to say, and most of the fans were, you know, obviously like diehard wrestling fans from the New York area, but uh, this was right around the time that Flair was leaving the World Wrestling Federation, but he had that no-compete clause. So he could sign with WCW, and he could appear on their TV, but he couldn't wrestle. And I think this was after he lost that loser leaves town to to Mr. Perfect in the Manhattan Center in New York City, another building Mm -hmm. in New York that has created a lot of uh, unbelievable moments in wrestling history. You and I kind of talked about it off air, but the Manhattan Center and how it changed the way we view wrestling and television to what it is today with Monday Night Raw. Talk a little bit about that. Manhattan Center uh, was the first venue ever for the first show of Monday Night Raw. Yep. And the first time WWF was going to go live with a show and just go for it on Monday nights. They were, before that, running a primetime wrestling show, tapes, format studio, and uh, bringing matches from different areas of the week into the discussion as a weekly show. But now they're going on a limb and they picked New York City as the, the venue in Manhattan Center. It, it, it held, uh, I believe, I don't know, it's a thousand people. Yeah, I want to say it's like roughly a thousand, maybe roughly a little a th- under. Rabid crowd, live audience, raw, you know, uncut as they'd say. And Rob Bartlett was there for his, <laughs> it was horrible, but they, they, they tried everything. And uh, they ran there for months as uh, as uh, by they would do every two weeks they would run they would have a second show taped. Yep. I think the f- uh, third episode was uh, Mr. Perfect versus Flair, third or fourth episode, or just something like that. Yeah, and uh, the night after the Royal Rumble. But then uh, after that, they had the, they ran into uh, where they wanted to go on the road because the, I think the expenses were getting too high and they just wanted to take it to a different flavor, get bigger buildings. So they would dip a Kipsy. They, they had hit other spots that they normally would run, and then they started taking it to smaller arenas. So um, New York, the Manhattan Center, is one thing, but neighboring the Manhattan Center and, and going too futuristic from it, but there's um, the Hammerstein Ballroom. Yes. In the, and that is uh, another. I love that building. I do too, and uh, I've seen musical concerts and events there. Not live, but oh, I've seen wrestling there live, but I've seen other things there. And the, uh, the acoustics in the building are, are off the charts. Yeah. It's, one of those buildings where a sound from uh, an audience just just makes a, a whole show. I've seen ECW pay-per-views there when WWF had them and when ECW was running yeah. them. And uh, the things that happened in that building. I went to uh, the one-night stand there that WWE had. The in, first one in 05? The first one, and it was unbelievable to see the passion that those yes. fans had. They didn't have their ECW for you know four or five years or whatever it was and it came back and and you know it wasn't the real ecw but at least it was everything that it could be and it was an emotional time and just hearing uh the music of the sandman play and everybody singing again oh man in that building 
with the, you know, the way that they ran it was unbelievable. I saw tears in people's eyes when the show was over. Uh, emotion that I'd never experienced in wrestling for a while had uh, been brought to life back in that night. And uh, they did it again a year later. It wasn't really the same, but they did have that, that type of audience that was rebellious. I think uh, Rob Van Dam was uh, fighting Ray Mysterio. John Cena. John Cena. That's, yeah. Was it uh, John? Who did Mysterio fight? Sabu. Sabu, yeah. Yes, well, I mean, that was an interesting show, too. They and, tried to do, like, the ECW, WWF kind of, like, head-to-head kind of yeah. rivalry and, you know, kind of do the us versus the establishment mm-hmm. storyline. You know. so, so Hammerstein's one of those buildings that, you know, to this day, the Ring of Honor, they, they, they run there yeah. and they do very successful uh, it's it's a good building. Yeah. That and uh, you know you, we were talking about the Barclays Center on the last uh, time we were speaking. Yep. There's some uh, major buildings that are uh, in in New York. I know that with that ECW show that you mentioned, the the first one night stand in 2005. There's been a few instances in my my fandom over the years where. Um, you know, I sit and I watch and I enjoy myself and I have a good time. But I, there's probably like very few instances where I'm watching something and because an audience is so the energy is so high on the television screen that like I feel like I'm there yeah. you know what I mean and th- there's another event from another city that I'll that I'll, I'll kind of explain in a little bit um, but I remember watching that event at home and I could just feel the energy from that building and what I love about that building is like the the cosmetically what it looks like on the inside like i thought ecw was like a perfect fit for that building like they they started running hammerstein towards the end before they you know had to file for bankruptcy but i felt that um i loved like the balconies and like the little you know the 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 little spots where people can kind of sit and it it was a theater you know like you said you could see Mm -hmm. musical acts there so i thought it definitely complemented the the presentation of ecw i know tna ran some house shows there over the years um you know ring of honor does some stuff i would love to see wwe bring nxt there even though they kind of run their big nxt events in major arenas and they kind of um you know, have have those complement the the big pay per view weekends. But uh, to me, Hammerstein Ballroom, um, probably another one of those buildings that you know is is on my rec- wrestling bucket list of places I'd like to go uh, see a wrestling show because it just it's got so, and we talked about it in the previous episode another building with character. Mm-hmm. You know the the people that that, that that go and attend those shows, but just like cosmetically what it looks like. I can't really describe it, but it's just I always thought it was a cool venue to uh to go to uh you know with new york city any more new york city memories when it comes to to, to pro wrestling and we can't um forget about long island and the nassau coliseum yes. and the things that had happened in that building yes. uh, it was a host of a wrestlemania 2 yep um they they went uh, three venues that time they went la chicago and new, new york and they picked nassau as the third venue uh it the first bunkhouse stampede on pay-per-view was That's held right. there and so that went head to head with uh, the Royal Rumble. Royal Rumble, yep, so, in '88. Okay. So that, there was a lot of uh, things. D- D- WCW had run Nassau a few times. They also tried to run the Meadowlands in Jersey, but um, Nassau Coliseum was uh, a cheap building to, to rent. It's probably the cheapest one out of the, the New York area yep. to get. So they were able to get a lot of different events. They even videotaped a lot of WWF shows on the USA Network that emanated from the Nassau Coliseum. And then mm. when the Garden was renovating, they were running Nassau Coliseum shows on uh, the, the USA uh, MSG Network. 
So there's a lot of things that have happened over there, and Saturday Night's main event, the first ever, yes, was from the Nassau Coliseum. Yes, that's yeah. right. Shawn Michaels' return at SummerSlam against Triple H that year, yes, Nassau it's... Coliseum. So. Uh, Vince Russo, not a, it's not a it's not, it's not a very um, uh, pleasant moment. Just but say it. Just get it off. Vince system. Russo won the WCW World Heavyweight Championship what in a that lucky building. Hometown guy against Booker T in their in WCW's version of the Hell in the Cell. I forget what they called it, but it was pretty much you know same thing as Hell in the Cell, mm-hmm. a cage with a roof that you know engulfed the floor. But yeah, yeah. There's there's great moments and there there's a few stinkers, and I'm sure we'll get into to, to, to plenty of those. But I figured I'd kick things off with uh with with a, a mention of vince russo and his involvement in uh in, in new york wrestling but yeah i mean ah. nassau, <laughs> nassau now they redid the building um i know wwe's yes. run run a few raws um from the building but like they they redid it completely um they hadn't run wrestling for quite some time over there and then Originally, the building was going to get torn down, from what I heard. Yes. And then now the Islanders are going to move back. They were in Brooklyn at Barclays, and they had some issues with you know the building. And now the the, the hockey team's going to move back. But uh, yeah, WWE and and pro wrestling definitely um, very synonymous with Long Island, New York, and uh, the the Nassau Coliseum. Like you said, WrestleMania two portion of WrestleMania two, SummerSlam two thousand and two. Uh, one of the one of the, the big events. Uh, we've definitely covered a lot when it comes to New York City, but we're gonna move on, and because uh, we could talk about New York City and pro wrestling pretty much all day, but we you know we want to dedicate our time to other cities as well. We're gonna go to the Midwest and uh, talk about um, two cities in particular: uh, Chicago and Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, both. AWA mainstays in professional wrestling. Uh, a lot of guys that got their start in the WWF, um, or at least made it big into the World Wrestling Federation, really made a splash in the AWA. Obviously, the biggest one being Hulk Hogan uh, and his and his his run against Nick Bockwinkel for the AWA World Heavyweight Title. Uh, their their legendary matches taking place in Chicago and in Minneapolis. Uh, Chicago, another one of those cities that, for me, when I when I watch wrestling and even to this day, they kind of have that that same um, vocal, um, you know, rebellious nature that Philadelphia and New York City has. Um, but not as it's strong, but it's not as strong as Philly and 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 New York. That's for sure. Uh, talk to me a little bit about uh, Chicago, Minneapolis, AWA. Some of your favorite memories from those cities and in, in the history of pro wrestling. Chicago. I've been down there three times for wrestling shows. Believe it or not. But, really. But they were for AAA shows. Okay. <laughs> and right. If you could believe that, I've never seen uh, any other promotion besides oh, okay. AAA uh, wrestling wrestling down there yep but uh and i actually because i uh used to like the one-man gang and we were in the area i found halstead street chicago it's legit it's okay. out there so right. we drove down that thing we thought we were gonna get shot or something <laughs> and it's pretty rough but um yeah Did that get the rush street uh nope we didn't go there but i just kept thinking of the one-man gang it's the whole time <laughs> but yes uh chicago uh they it's uh it's it's a tough town but it's also a very busy place there's three airports there's um a lot of a lot of history there uh, ring of honor has been run running 
Chicago for a number of years and drawing very well. Uh, their TV is always good out there for everything. So it, it's it's the mid it's the middle of America, but it's it's also pretty uh, it's pretty popular compared to other areas. Not of course like a New York or an LA, but they do have their good moments. And the AWA was a part of that area. Yes. And so having people in that spot to be able to use, and I think the the Crusher and the Bruiser were always available to go from there from Milwaukee to, to to fight in Chicago. There's um there's actually if you watch ESPN, uh, the classics. There's a lot of wrestling matches from the '60s and '70s that emanate from the amphitheater. I think it was called in Chicago. Okay. So you would see uh, Buddy Rogers, and you would see um, Argentina Rock, or whatever whoever these people were that were down there. You would see these matches. Uh-huh. So there, there's there's a, a rich history from Chicago. I know. AWA used to run a lot of different times over there. So with Hulk Hogan, you always had you know marquee matches and draw big big attendance. So wrestling in Chicago for the most part was was very good, and it's uh, it's had its it's had its moments. It's had its WrestleMania too. It's had uh, Mr. T supposedly <laughs> from Chicago, the tough you know streets of Chicago in WrestleMania one. So that that's what a lot of it goes down with him and back then and. You know that's that's really all I got about Chicago. Yeah. But I had been down there for AAA wrestling, and that another wrestling it. bucket list for me. Yep. Um, I remember, like you said, WrestleMania two emanating from Chicago. Uh, the WrestleMania thirteen, Steve Austin, Bret Hart, the yes. submission match. Um, more recently, in recent years, um, you know WWE runs Chicago multiple times a year. They do pay per views, but that. Um, that big Money in the Bank pay-per-view yes. with the whole CM Punk storyline and leaving with the title. And that was another instance where um, we were at Ken, uh, Ken Reedy's house in New York, and we wa- we he uh, ordered the pay-per-view, and we were watching it. And it was, you know, it, it, I'll, I'll paint the picture for you here. It's a, it's a brutal hot summer day in the middle of July. He's got a pool. We're hanging out. We're having a few beverages. We're really excited because the storyline going in, obviously, um, was probably the most uh, interesting storyline that the WWE had at that time with the CM Punk thing and his contract being up against John Cena. And wrestling fans at that time were just wanting a change because it just wasn't appealing or satisfying creatively for him and so we're enjoying ourselves as we're getting ready for the pay-per-view and then you know he's he blasts the air conditioning on there's probably about like 10 or 15 of us and got the surround sound on and that audience that energy yes. you just felt it and i that was another instance where i was sitting in his living room and i looked around and i said to everyone i go i feel like i'm in chicago right now like that's how hot that crowd was um and they've continued to i mean it, they're their level of being vocal, I feel like, has has grown over the years. It's not like New York and Philadelphia, where they've always been very, um, you know, in your face when it comes to, you know, the the audience's reaction to things. I feel like in Chicago, it's grown. Like they, you know, the the their their christening of of Steve Austin being their hero at WrestleMania 13 when the blood was pouring off his face and he didn't say I quit to Bret Hart and he still lost the match and over the years I just felt like it built and built and built and now like finally like they're on that kind of like I said that same level as Philly and New York where they're just very like 
outward and vocal about their wrestling and what they like and certainly what they dislike. But, um, yeah, the CM Punk storyline and that whole Money in the Bank pay-per-view, I think, was just a really good show good. overall. Like, probably one of their best shows that they've had in the last, like, seven or eight years, in my opinion. They've had some good stuff, but, you know, and they've also had some stinkers, too. But um, <laughs> another memory of Chicago, probably uh, the Chi-Town Rumble, yep. Flair and Steamboat for the title. Yes. When Steamboat beat Flair. Um, for in the, that trilogy, and that was the start of the trilogy in 1989, took place in Chicago at the Chi Town Rumble. Well, if you're gonna go the NWA route, the first time Starcade actually left Carolinas That's right, was, in, was in 1987 at the Rosemont Horizon, and um, it was a seven match card on pay per view. And the main event was uh, Ric Flair versus Ron Garvin. Garvin cage. was a champion. Yeah. And uh, you were talking about volume and uh, you know feeling like you're in the arena. Pop that pay-per-view in. And uh, that's one of those events that when you feel like you're there, you run to your remote and you turn the volume up a little yes. louder so that you could feel it even better. Yes. And you just get yourself captured. And that pay-per-view uh, was electric. Yeah. And I think uh, Shivani... And was it Jim Ross were calling it together? Was it not? Am I mistaken? You might be correct. And Either. they let the action speak for itself. It yeah. was it was an amazing uh, Road Warriors against the Horsemen for the NWA yes, tag titles. The ovations and the just the way that the, the the card shaped up, but the way the audience was. Chicago was very happy to have it. Yep. But boy, oh boy, were the Carolinas pissed. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, and we're definitely going to touch upon the Carolinas and 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 their history when it comes to. Uh, professional wrestling as we as we move on we're, we're um you know mini, well let's talk about minneapolis for a little bit you know a home of the awa yes. awa had produced you know we talked about on our last episode the amount of talents that came out of calgary but the amount of guys Ooh. that had come out of minnesota and Vern Gagne and the awa is just it, it, it it's mind-blowing i mean we can list off a who's who rick flair ricky the dragon steamboat hulk hogan sergeant slaughter the iron Sheik. i mean we could go on and on and on and it's just it obviously as i've gotten older and done more research and like i said become more sophisticated i didn't know growing up a lot of these guys came from the awa until like reading the magazines and, and shit like that but uh, yeah, Minnesota definitely was a. Um, it doesn't get it doesn't get looked at as a major wrestling town, but mm-hmm. I feel like it's one of the more underrated wrestling cities, Minneapolis, uh, for what they've contributed to the business. Well, Bob Backlund is also from Princeton. And he, yes. So he, uh, he, his parents would has lived there. He'd drive to Minnesota and, and see them when he moved up here to Connecticut. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, and then Brock Lesnar is from Minnesota. Brad Rangins and Shel- I think Shelton Benjamin is from Minnesota. Uh, not, yes, I believe. So. There's there's so many people that are. He went to college in Minnesota. I think he was from like South Carolina or something like right. that. So it all goes to Kurt Henning, where it came from, and that's um, Vern Gagne. Yes. He was the AWA champion forever, except a few times. <laughs> <laughs> but um, he had a school. He, he had a barn or whatever is out back, and he would train wrestlers, and he didn't let people quit too easily, nope. too. He'd beat the crap out of them, and then they'd go drag him. Iron Sheik was one guy that said, I'm not doing this after the first day. And they got him back there, and he made him. Sheik tried to quit, really? Yes, a lot of wow. people tried to quit. I know quit. Flair tried to quit a couple Flair of times. Flair, too. 
So there's a lot of uh, a lot of people out there that that had gone through Vern mm-hmm. to, to to be wrestlers and and uh, you know like you said there's there's Road Warriors and Rick Rude in the modern era era with Kurt Hennig not the modern but in the 80s there's so much talent it's 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 unbelievable how many people actually the Rockers Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty well I think. Uh, they got their well. They got their start. They made their start, but Michael's from from Texas and Jenny yeah. was from Georgia. But their their beginnings had started in Central States, but they were formed as a as a rocker tag team in in uh, AWA. Yeah, and there's just so many things that had happened. And, and Hulk Hogan, when he went out to Minnesota and feuded with Nick Bockwinkel, they draw the St. Paul Civic Center, fill the house up, and do the fake title change and make people think that the he got the belt. Finish. Yeah. And uh, just send people home happy. That you had King Kong Bundy's, and you had uh, Jerry Lawler was a was a main guy down there. Bruiser Brody was in there on occasion until he get mad and not want to work. They ran Wrestle Rock. Don't forget, Wrestle Rock was in the in Minneapolis, Minnesota, yep. and that was headlined by I believe, that was in the, the Metrodome, right? Yes, the Hubert H. Humphrey Metrodome. Do you remember the Wrestle Rock Rumble? Um, vaguely, you're well, gonna have go to go to YouTube. Go to okay. YouTube and, and watch Vern Gagne rap. And, uh, Stop! Oh yeah! Holy shit! All right, and I'm the, gonna have to find yeah, that on YouTube. I might put that up on it's, uh, uh, on it's, our social media. As my uh, favorite, one of my favorite websites, Russell Crap yes. by Artie Reynolds. That's probably his uh, most famous induction besides a Gooker Award. Wow, <laughs> that's wild. It's uh, it's it's unbelievable. There's there's so much, but they they drew a big house, and that was uh, they had uh, I think Ric Flair was on the show, and a bunch of people were on that show. So Stan Hansen was on that show. He was a he was the AWA champion. I think he fought, or was it eighty five? I think he was in in eighty five. Because I know the main event was. Was uh, uh, Vern Gagne and Greg? Was it Greg Gagne and, and uh, Brody or Vern? Or was it Vern? Uh, it was a cage match. Snuka was in there. Okay. I think it was uh, Snuka and uh, Greg Gagne against Brody and Nord the Barbarian. John Nord the Berserker. Husk. Another one from the <laughs> Minneapolis yes. area. Yeah, Rick Rude, Minneapolis guy, didn't have a run in AWA. But, the Destruction uh, Crew. Yeah, um, the, who then became the Beverly Brothers, Bo and Blake. Yep. Um, wow, yeah. I mean, of course, Larry Zabisco mm-hmm. would, you know, marry Vern Gagne's daughter at one point and become the AWA champion only because Vern couldn't trust anyone else, so he gave it to his son-in-law. Um, he didn't trust anybody. Even when he was champ, he gave it to himself. Yeah. <laughs> didn't even give it to his kid. Yeah, didn't give it to his kid. Jim Brunzel. And, and speaking of his kid, Greg Gagne, Jim Brunzel, the, uh, yep. the you know, the, the high, high flyers, flyers against uh, the, the East-West connection of uh, Jesse the Body Ventura and uh, yep. Adrian Adonis. And Ventura went on to become the governor of Minnesota. Yes, very, very apropos. Yeah, Minnesota's a, a pretty uh, famous place when it comes to the personalities involved in the wrestling business, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah, he did, yeah, yeah. Uh, Oh, Sean Waltman, guy from a Minnesota guy. I know uh, uh, Mr. Kennedy, Ken Anderson, Jerry Lynn. Jerry Lynn is from Minnesota. Yep, Minnesota as well. And like you said, Robbinsdale, I believe, was ravishing Rick Rude. Uh, the the Road Warriors came from that area, although you know, they eventually moved to Chicago. Originally, I, I want to say it was Animal or Hawk originally from the 
the uh, the, the Minneapolis St. Paul area, but uh, Minnesota definitely a, a, a city or excuse me a state uh, that that doesn't get enough love when it comes to their contributions to wrestling just on a talent level uh but the awa was um i wouldn't i wouldn't say it was uh the 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 best wrestling in the world but they definitely produced um a lot a lot a lot of guys who would go on to, to 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 bigger things in the industry um moving on we're gonna we're gonna go west uh, we're gonna, you know, go from the Midwest all the way out to uh, the city of Angels, Los Angeles, California. Um, don't have any knowledge of any territories from out there, but some big, big moments that had taken place in the Los Angeles area. WrestleMania two, uh, the third portion of WrestleMania two that we discussed, uh, you know, main evented by Hulk Hogan and King Kong Bundy. Uh, was at the Los Angeles uh, Sports Arena for that event, as well as uh, WrestleMania Seven, which is most known for one of my favorite matches. And you, you kind of brought this up in the first episode. You said, you know, Warrior's best match was against Hogan. I think his best match was against Randy Savage in the career-ending match at WrestleMania Seven in Los Angeles. You know what? I think you are right on that. Now that I think about it, and uh, that was a good match because I think Elizabeth wasn't seen with Savage for a while, and no. Savage was a heel. And she was all of a sudden in the audience, and it brought a whole new emotion to the match. Yeah. Where you were almost pushing for Randy to win because you did not want to see a talent like him retire. Yeah. And the Warrior ended up beating him in that match, and it was kind of sad. And then you saw Elizabeth run in at the end as well. And yep. <laughs> They, they got together again and everybody cried. They 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 <laughs> over they over publicize and over hype um you know WrestleMania moments in 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 recent years in WWE but to me like that was the first true WrestleMania moment. I remember I didn't watch it on pay-per-view but um I read the newspaper article from the New York Post from the Informer which I believe I want to say um Vince Russo yes. had a column in the New York Post doing wrestling. Uh, and that There's was, that name again. Yeah, I know, right? He, he just keeps creeping in. Bro. Um, and that was when I found out, you know, that Randy and, and Liz had reunited. But then watching it on TV, I think they showed, like, the highlights on primetime wrestling or something or, or superstars or something like that. And just seeing all the people crying, like, that was, like, the true very first, like, genuine wrestlemania moment that like grabbed at the audience um originally that show was supposed to take place in the the los angeles coliseum yes and do you think that the moments that you just experienced that you shared would be captured in a hundred thousand seat outdoor arena like the la coliseum i get a feeling that being outdoors and i don't think they would have drawn a hundred thousand anyways because they couldn't even fill 20 that event would have been terrible. Uh, it would have been horrible to watch, even though the wrestling might have still been there, but I don't think the atmosphere would have made that WrestleMania yeah. any good. But being inside the L.A. Coliseum is what made it really good. Yeah, I mean... For that show. Yeah, the... the, the, the and there's oh, there's always been, like, different little urban myths as, as to, like, why they didn't run the Coliseum. You know, some wrestling critics out there will say that, you know, they couldn't draw... Um, 
they couldn't they couldn't draw you know a hundred thousand people into the Coliseum. That's why they moved him inside to the 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 sports arena. Uh, some will say that you know it was because of a security risk, you know, in the middle of the Gulf War with the whole Sergeant Slaughter storyline. Um, well, what I look at with that is. You didn't hear anybody complaining that they now can't go to the building because they moved it into a smaller venue. Yeah. If there was going to be 100,000 people going and they had tickets on sale for weeks, yeah, they weren't there no, weeks right. in and there was nobody looking for a, a seat after they moved it to a smaller building. Yeah. No, so I don't right. think that they would have came close because there's no way they would have had a strong walk-up on that for 80,000 tickets. I think, too, um, and, and this goes back to um, – you know, and for those of you that are listening, you know, a lot of my inspiration for doing this show is listening to, um, you know, the Bruce Pritchard podcast. I love the stories and whether they're true or not, you know, it's his perspective on things and how he saw it. But they did a they did a cover of uh, WrestleMania seven and they talked about like, you know, the, the, the lead up to, you know, going into the, the, the Coliseum and. Um, Bruce didn't shoot down those rumors that, you know, that, that they couldn't draw very well. But I think also at the time as a company, they weren't able to manage or maintain um, the kind of production quality that they needed to run a show in an outdoor stadium like that. Um, because it was an old rundown stadium, you know what I mean? They would have had to have dumped you know, millions upon millions of dollars to make it look presentable on television. And that was one of the reasons I think why they kind of backed out and moved it to the, the from the Coliseum to the, uh, the, the, the sports arena. Yeah, that would be true. Uh, you went to a WrestleMania in Orlando and that place is a dump yes, as well. It was. And, and look what it looked yeah. like on TV. They the did a lot of ball. work. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I went to that one and dude, I'll never forget like, going to that show and the the stadium was like literally like in the middle of a neighborhood like the, like the ghetto like i parked on some like we parked on like a little league baseball field at like a park nearby but like around the corner there were people in like these like tin shack homes that were charging like 25 to 50 bucks to park in their driveway and there was only two spots in the driveway uh, so they were looking to make like a quick 50 you know 50 to 100 bucks uh, whatever's um, in your car to after <laughs> yeah and it was a, but it was a shithole like in, just in the area in general I didn't go to the most recent one in 2017 in in the same stadium, but they've done a lot of work to the stadium. Uh, they redid the stadium as as well as you know in the surrounding area. Um, but you know, in, in more recent, getting back to Los Angeles in more recent years, um, the there was an article on ESPN that Los Angeles was and the, the people who own the property for the Olympic Coliseum, they're they they're trying to lobby to get a WrestleMania at that stadium again. Wow. And um because they feel like they they would be able to they would be able to better produce it. And one of the things that was mentioned in that article was that um they didn't have the resources to even sustain holding a WrestleMania at that stadium so it was almost like they should like according to the person that was you know being interviewed for this article they they shouldn't have even had any business hosting a wrestlemania and right. wwe shouldn't have had any business you know trying to put on one in the in the building because neither neither party was prepared for that but um with the new football stadium that's coming and i want to say i want to say it's 2020 maybe i think the the new stadium for the the rams and the and the chargers 
I'm sure WrestleMania will eventually be put in that palace that they that they have right. built and ready to go. Well, it happens all the time. WrestleMania will go to Texas and they'll go to this Cowboy Stadium. They went to San Francisco yeah. when they built their stadium. They they will consider any new stadium that wants to host them and pay them the price for it. Yeah, you talk about Texas, and uh, you know we we move on on this road trip here, and we we we, we go to Houston. Uh, Houston's got a lot of memories. Uh, with Paul Bosch and Houston Wrestling, we kind of touched upon a little bit with uh, uh, Gino Hernandez being a, a big name coming out of that territory. WrestleManias were hosted in that venue. Uh, uh, you went to a WrestleMania in Houston in in, in two thousand and nine. Uh, probably the arguably the greatest WrestleMania in history. WrestleMania seventeen was held at the old Astrodome where the the Houston Astros played. Uh, talk to me a little bit about you know the 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 humble beginnings of pro wrestling in the Houston, Texas area. Well, as far as I know, um, I, I, I could go back to Paul Bosch and the way that he had the area. And he was a, a longtime promoter that always seemed to pay well, that everybody used to say, he'd bring in the big names. And when you bring in the big names, you're going to get the crowd to come. So he was doing it for a number of years. And then the talent that would come in the area, they would also go off to Fritz von Erich and, and workshops for him in, in Dallas. And then they also would uh, go to Watts. And Watts was more or less on the other side in the Oklahoma area. So Paul Bosch was very well known. And he would he would do it for a number of years until the business started getting tougher to draw because of the cable industry and the yeah. way that the big-time players were, were taking over, like McMahon and, and even Crockett. So he had sold his territory to Vince uh, he he had taken over for Watts first. Watts had sold first to, to sold his territory to Crockett, so that left Bosch with some of the names that were left over in the areas that were run, and he would have some of the people on his TV show doing the one end. But Bosch went to uh, McMahon as well, and in 1987 they had a retirement show for Bosch to honor him, and they they did whatever Paul wanted. I, I think you being a Bruce Pritchard fan, you had heard some stories about how that show went down. Because uh, Bruce had talked about it at some point, uh, how they Vince just said whatever Paul wants this night, we'll do it for him. Yeah, they brought in some uh, legendary names. Wait, Hogan worked that show yep. too. Mill Moscaris came into town for a shot uh, for the show. There's there was names on there. There's three different promotions in the building. I think Vern Gagne was in the building. As a matter of fact, there was so many different people there all to honor uh, Paul Bosch. And then after that show had taken place. He he despised McMahon more than ever, I think, because he was unhappy afterwards at the way that it you know went down. But the payday was there, and he wanted out, so therefore he was happy with that. There was some sort of conflict with money, I know. Um, they between... gave him all the money, though, from what I heard. Vince said he could have it all. Yeah. Believe it or not. Vince provided the talent. Vince helped pay for the promotion. Vince... Um... You know, he, he kind of helped foot the bill. To get the territory and the TV stations and everything else. And, and his last day, he said, you can have it all. Yeah, but I, I mean, from what I've heard, I heard that it, originally it was, you know, they were going to try and organize some kind of split, right. you know, from the proceeds of the show. And Paul basically said, nope, <laughs> not going <laughs> to happen. You know, it's, it's, my, it's my last go. And, uh, and, and, and that was the end of that. And th- the story I've heard th- from, you know, the Bruce Pritchard podcast was that uh, Vince kind of took that one on the chin and said, okay, 
Yeah, fine, you know, you're, you're done anyways. I've kind of, you know, bought the territory out. So you right. can have it for tonight, but, you know. Well, Vince is notorious for taking it on the chin. Ask Bret Hart, right? Yeah. He'll do it. <laughs> if it's if it's going to be the right term, a right thing for long-term business, he'll take a shot in the first place to yeah. get there. Yeah. And that he gave it up for Paul. And you know what? Paul deserved it. You know, that was his night. And, you know, maybe not giving him every penny at the gate for all the promotion he put into it, but... In the end, he had the territory and TV, and he, he, he cashed in from the from Talk it. about some of the names, though, that, 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 that went through Houston. I mean, we talked earlier, Gino Hernandez, and and the the uh, the, the possibility that he was the son of Paul Bosch. Uh, but uh, two names that we kind of talked about off-air that I was very surprised about after uh, listening to that, that Pritchard podcast a while back on Houston Wrestling was uh, Ivan Putski. Holy moly, yeah. Polish power Ivan Putski, who was a mainstay in the Northeast in the World Wrestling Federation, uh, work in the Houston Territory and coming in and I didn't realize, like you, like you and I talked about it, I thought he was always Polish and he just worked Houston and, you know, no Polish accent and he was just Ivan Putski and he was, a, you know, from Texas and <laughs> I did, I, it was just mind-boggling to me when I heard that and then Bruno working Houston yes, and Bruno Sammartino and I've heard this through, you know, through other interviews I've seen. But Bruno was not very well liked by the fans in a number of different territories outside of the Northeast, and especially in New York. Um, working Houston, he didn't fit that style of wrestling. No, the, the, the brawler that stands there just slugs away when it's time and kicks and gets the victory by just punching him in the head. That didn't work. Yeah. Or the bear hug. It, it wasn't over in Houston. They wanted to see a little more than that. And um, yeah, he he never really got accepted at all down there. And Putski at first was was loved, but when he went to WWF in 1983, 84, 85, and Vince McMahon threw him on the TNT show and had him do a polka dance for him and all these things, and he's singing at the microphone, all the Polish anthem or whatever he's saying, he went back to Texas and he never drew. Yeah. The people would not believe in it anymore. He would, he had, he, they don't remember that guy. Yeah. He was a totally different person. So, total change for Ivan Putski in, in the second time when he went down there. Now, your, uh, your, uh, your memories of Houston was uh, the, the WrestleMania in 2009. Uh Sitting next to Mickey Rourke, you made it on the camera. If you watched the uh, oh, yeah, I did. The, the, the WrestleMania 25 on the WWE Network, you'll find uh, Bill Brown sneaking in right right over Mickey Rourke's shoulder <laughs> before the uh, the Chris Jericho match, and a few other times too. But that was probably the most notably when I that was when I saw uh, you there. Probably the for a wrestling like a high point in my life. Not just because it wasn't the show that did it; it was just being there. It was. Waiting outside in the parking lot with 60-something thousand people to get in line and getting the access to go in through the down tunnel to get to the floor. Mm-hmm. And I saw Larry Sweeney there beforehand, and he was just playing around with the, the audience and wrestling people and stuff. It was really awkward to, to see because he passed away months later. It yeah. was kind of funny. But, um, I you know, we got in there, and I walk in the building, and I, I'm just looking up at these little pins in the sky and it's, you know it's the people it's there's 60,000 people and I'm getting closer to this ring 
that is miles away, it seems, and I'm just walking towards it knowing I'm going right to it, and I'm just continuing on, and then I got the seat, and then just to be down there on the floor and to see TVs that are about 80 inches wide that are all set up around ringside so that people in the back could see stuff on the monitors because they didn't have a big monitor. It was amazing, and the aisle was huge. Oh, yeah. The fireworks were huge. They rolled the mats every time. There was another match to take the canvas off for that match to sell it on a plaque. And there's so much uh, pyro, and Kid Rock was in concert. They had to get him going. The celebrities were there. The the f- many famous people in the audience. Vander Holyfield, I think, was he there. He was yeah. there. ZZ Top was there. Um there was a couple. There were some other people I cannot remember, but they were in the hotel bar. The WrestleMania party after. Um, you know, just being in the Houston area to, to see my first major live WrestleMania where, you know, stadium WrestleMania. That was the first time ever. I, I saw it. the main event was Triple H against, I believe, Randy Orton. Yes. Not notable. I mean, very predictable outcome. Wasn't impressed. I saw Matt Hardy versus his brother, uh, Jeff Hardy. There. But it was still, uh, you know, WrestleMania moment in my life. Something you, you can't you can't beat it when you're on the holding the guardrail up and, you know, you watch Steve Austin come out and acknowledge on a hum on a, a hum, uh, RV there going around the ring yeah. and it's Hall of Fame uh, acceptance yep. after he got put in and and beer bashing you and you're getting wet. It it's a moment you could never take back and. I don't think I'll ever enjoy a WrestleMania as much as that, no matter how good the card is, just because I was right there yeah, the you, whole time. Now, I've talked with my brother about this because he was at that WrestleMania too. Um, and, you, and this is one moment that you didn't mention. I think Houston, Texas, uh, for, for two reasons, holds a place in wrestling history for the greatest wrestlemania of all time being wrestlemania 17 which took place in 2000 and in 2001 eight years prior we can discuss that in a in a, in a, in a minute or so x7 but yeah x7 yeah but you could also say that houston texas was the home of the greatest wrestling match at least in my opinion in the history of wrestling Shawn michaels undertaker now talking with my brother he has told me that he couldn't even hear himself think after the moment in the match where Michaels kicked out of the tombstone and there was that look, that like gazed look that Undertaker had on his face. The audience played a big part in the roller coaster that that match was and the story that that was told. Give me your firsthand account, if you can recall, of Undertaker Shawn Michaels from that WrestleMania in 2009. I couldn't believe that those two could have a match as good as they had. Shawn Michaels was Mr. WrestleMania, but this is like the cemented part of his career where you knew going in that he was going to be Mr. WrestleMania. And I didn't think Undertaker was going to be able to go 30 minutes toe-to-toe like that, drop him on his head a few times and get some kickouts. That was a great match, and the audience and the crowd for a big venue like that, they they accepted every single bit of it, and that's what makes the, the matchup stand up so well. Um, that was probably, if you're going to rank a match live that I have seen, that could be one of the greatest matches I've ever seen. And that that's not saying that there's not other ones that are greater. It depends on where you're you're sitting. If you're right there, you enjoy it a lot more. If you're sitting in the balcony, you would not accept it. I sat 
at WrestleMania 10 in the balcony during the matches with Brett and Owen. I couldn't remember how good those matches were because I really couldn't tell. Yeah. It's so far away. It's great, but, you know, it doesn't stick in your mind. Being right there and just the, that that atmosphere that we had was unbelievable. And those guys worked their hearts out. And uh, it was so good. They did it a couple more times. So, you know, they that was that was a great time to, to, to see. And it was worth every bit of, it, of its money for the pay-per-view. Oh, I mean, like I, I'm usually every year right around WrestleMania time, I'll pick some matches that I you know want to watch, get excited for WrestleMania. Even though the last few years WrestleMania has kind of been eh, and uh, that's definitely on my list of matches that I have to watch. Um, I, I, I've shown it to my stepson, uh, who um, he was a wrestling fan at one point, but you know he kind of got out of it and he thought it was awesome. My wife didn't really care for it, but I mean, you know, teach his own. But that's, you know, certainly, uh, you know, right up there in terms of, uh, you know, one of the greatest matches of all time, if not the greatest wrestling match of all time. And, uh, you know, WrestleMania X7 taking place in that same city, but in a different stadium in the the the, the, Reliant. the Reliant Astrodome, where the, the former Major League Baseball Houston Astros played at one point. Uh, arguably the greatest WrestleMania pay-per-view of all time taking place a week after the sale of WCW to the World Wrestling Federation. Um, Houston hosting that WrestleMania that year. I mean, top to bottom, is there anything bad you could say about that WrestleMania? No, the talent on there was good. And then they even threw WCW in the skybox, whatever they, they had brought in, some of the undercard talent that they kept uh, to the show. And you knew that big things were coming, they were on such uh, a high wave buying WCW. I mean, that that it never be dreamed of to ever happen. So you're seeing this card with all this momentum and The Rock and Austin being hotter than anything ever. Um, the main event, though, if we're going to talk about that show, definitely a mixed bag of uh, thought on that via Austin winning with a heel, Vince McMahon joining him. Yeah. That. If that didn't take place and the result was a little different, I think that show would have really stuck out because at the end of the show, you were kind of like in a little bit of disbelief and kind of like, how's this going to work? I can't yeah. buy that. I, I will say that I've, I've said this before. Um, I didn't mind the turn because it was it, – it, it brought like a, a, a shock factor – to that show that you know fit in nicely i think the problem with that turn was was that it took place in texas yeah and austin is like a folk hero in the state of texas and if that turn took place in even in the northeast mm -hmm. you know if wrestlemania was held held at like giant stadium or metlife or whatever at that time if it was you know i think it would have been accepted better but because it was held in Texas, nobody believed it because people people loved Stone Cold no matter what, mm -hmm. especially in Texas. So, um, but I mean, overall, that card was just like, I mean, you know, Jericho Regal, Benoit and Angle, um, the 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 Shane McMahon and Vince McMahon. You had the TLC match, Undertaker and Triple H, the gimmick Battle Royal, which you know was yeah. was fun. I mean. Um, Arguably, like I said, Sean and Taker from that WrestleMania in 2009 is a match I watch 
Usually I try to watch like one or two full WrestleMania pay-per-views that are my favorites. That's usually one of them because it's just it was just a, a, a great show, you know, top to bottom with the, the the level of talent that was in there. As uh, you know, we continue uh, with our road trip here. We're gonna make it to the Big Easy. Uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, a city rich in wrestling history, uh, stemming from Bill Watts' Mid-South territory in the UWF, producing a lot of great talents that would eventually go on to be bigger stars in the industry on a mainstream level with the World Wrestling Federation and WCW, respectively. Uh, talk to me a little bit about New Orleans and, uh, and, and uh, Mid-South. Well, Mid South was a big promotion from the very early '80s, and uh, they ran up until about 1987. Um, so they were business was declining, but Bill Watts, he was uh, he was fantastic at, at being a booker and and just matchmaker that he did. He had some uh, incredible rough talent, believable talent. He would not give you. Uh, if Coco Beware was on that show, he wasn't holding the bird. You know, he he was he was a tough guy that was gonna fight. Yeah. And uh, he he had Midnight Express, the Rock and Roll Express, Ted DiBiase, Steve Williams, One Man Gang, just all of the hacksaw Duggan and Butch Reed and and just everybody was there that was tough and he protected them and that they always had good matches and and Ric Flair was was coming into territory defending the belt against the top people like like. Uh, uh, Terry Taylor, you know, or whatever. He just he draw the the houses at the Coliseum, the the or whatever it is, the Superdome. Yep. They had some uh, incredible angles uh, with JYD. JYD was probably one of the most popular wrestlers for Watts for a number of years, and they did a blind angle with him, and he came back. I think the Freebirds did it. it the things that Bill Watts was able to do. In, in Louisiana was uh, unbelievable. And it's too bad that it all ended for whatever reasons, uh, more than likely because of the cable exposure once again and rating of the town and Vince going national. But um, I, I had been there. The only time I had seen a wrestling show in, in uh, New Orleans was an ECW show. I actually made a journey down there. It was October... 28th and it was a weekend so it was halloween oh. weekend and you know how close bourbon street is oh yeah to well the venue we i don't know what the name of it was but it was in new orleans and for three nights friday saturday and then we even went during the day on sunday we conquered bourbon street <laughs> with a number of ecw wrestlers oh well, tell me. you got to tell me this now. Come <laughs> on. We, 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 Bubba Ray. I remember at the time, ECW used to do promos on TV, and Pulp Fiction was the background uh, music yeah, that would play. I remember that. And we walked into a bar, and they had a live band, and they played the music. <laughs> and I looked at Lance Wright with a video camera, and I just put it in his face, and we started cutting promos and putting the camera into people's faces like they were on a interview with. <laughs> oh, that's cool. So it was pretty funny to see. But uh, you know, we we would bump into Rob Van Dam and the Blue Meanie and Jerry Lynn and and you know, everybody was there. But there's you know twenty thousand people all over this road. You're you're lucky to get a, a moment to walk by them. Uh, just unbelievable memories. And then the ECW pay per view. Uh, 
that I went to that. It was a pretty good show. November to remember. Yes, it was. You were yeah. at that one. Yes. That's cool. That's yep. one of my favorite ECW shows. The uh, yep. Triple Threat against uh, Van Dam, Sabu, and Taz. Yep. Yeah. And I'm not big on uh, six man main events or tag team main events that are mixed up like that. But that was one of the better shows. It, I think the wrestlers were a little bit rough from uh, the week of partying yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because they, it was a it was a party weekend. But um, that that's if you're going to talk about New Orleans, that's that's where everybody goes right down there to Bourbon Street, and it's so close to all of the big things going on and in the area so you know that's that's something that every other town does not have could you could you say that um it, it's kind of fitting that you, you you tell the story about your 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 weekend ecw excursion in new orleans could you say that um that watts's territory in new orleans was like a precursor to what ecw was with the tough grittiness of his presentation not necessarily i think that if if um paul Heyman didn't even see Bill Watts's promotion. He still knew what a Philadelphia crowd would would want mm. because that that was just developed through the people there themselves and the characters he had. Uh, but don't get me wrong, uh, there are some aspects, of course, that you could see. There's similarities, but I don't think any of it really pertains to the way that ECW was formed. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, my experience in New Orleans is the last WrestleMania I went to in 2014. Uh, it was that year that they did the uh, the, the Daniel Bryan storyline, which I thought was probably one of their better stories uh, because it felt very real and it was very organic and the audience had a lot of participation in it. Um, me being a big Hulk Hogan guy, it was cool that Hogan returned uh, to host that WrestleMania and that moment with him in The Rock and Steve Austin in the ring. I thought was that was probably the coolest moment I got to be a part of because that was the closest thing that I was ever going to get to seeing Hogan and Austin at a WrestleMania and the rock and the rock. Yeah. Together. Yeah. You know, all three, like that was, that was cool as shit. But, um, I alluded to it earlier. Uh, the, the moment where Brock Lesnar had ended the undertaker's streak, uh, there was about 75,000 people in there and you could hear a pin drop like legit. You could hear a pin drop. That was the, the most silent, the, that was the biggest room that was that had the most people in it that was the most silent I've ever been in um, because of n- nobody nobody saw that coming nobody thought that that was possible you know that like nobody thought it was possible Bruno could lose the title mm-hmm. at the garden to, to Ivan Koloff and nobody thought it was possible that Undertaker's streak was going to end just like that and it was just you know so quickly you know matter of factly that that they that they ended that that was probably what I take away from that weekend experience in and of itself. I mean, I was on Bourbon Street. Uh, you saw a ton of ton of the guys working WrestleMania that were there, and it was a fun weekend overall. Um, that was the weekend the Warrior got inducted, and then subsequently passed away a couple of days later. But that was the last time I uh, I traveled to a WrestleMania was that year in 2014 in New Orleans. Um, yeah, that's that's my memories of, uh, of of New Orleans and the Big Easy when it comes to wrestling. Um, I know that like WCW ran some shows there, like at the Superdome a little bit. Well, yes, they had a uh, Flair Steamboat had yes. a uh, sixty minute match there. Yes, the was second part TV. of that '89 trilogy. Unbelievable. Yeah, 
with, with the. So uh, I don't think the Superdome had more than six thousand people in it for that match, though. If I'm if I'm not mistaken, that went up against WrestleMania five that year, and yes. they because the year before they had success with that first clash going up against WrestleMania four when they headlined Sting and Flair in um, in Greensboro. That's why. And so they wanted to do it again, but they didn't put enough promotion into it, and they only, I believe, like drew like. 2,500, 3,000 people, I heard, something like mm-hmm. that. That's why, like, if you watch, you go back and watch that clash, every, it, all you see is the ring. It's Everything is dark around you. You may see, yeah. like, one or two people in, like, the first couple of rows, but, you yeah. know. What's you know, the purpose of running a big building like that if you know you're not going to guarantee any kind of a audience to go to it? But those, but but that same building though would run like a lot of those big super shows that like uh, that Watts did with you know the big payoffs of the angles like the 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 coal miners glove tuxedo steel cage on a pole match with like hacksaw Jim Duggan and and Ted DiBiase. Holy and, cow! You brought that there. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I mean that that was that, that was probably one of the 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 most physical bloodiest matches that I've seen that came out of you know wow. New Orleans at that time. Um, so many memories down there. There really are. Yeah. I mean, we're 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 more unfamiliar with them because of where we live and how we grew up in our era. But there are so many things in uh, any investigation, we'd be like, "Wow, yeah. that really happened," you know? Yeah. And I'm sure some other people are sitting around going, "Yeah, what about that?" Well, you know, can't remember everything, but man. No, no, no. But I mean, we we do our best here. We try to cover, mm-hmm. you know, the, the the hubs and the hot spots in wrestling as we as we continue with this road trip. Uh, hope you guys are enjoying it. No, uh, hopefully we're, we're we're able to give you, you know, you know the, the 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 most important cities and like like Bill said, try not to forget, you know, and please, you know, don't take offense to it uh, as we continue this trip here to uh, Georgia, which is. Big in wrestling history on a number of levels because um, Georgia and Georgia Championship Wrestling kind of spawned off a number of different things that eventually would get us to where we are today in wrestling. And you know, you had Georgia Championship Wrestling, um, TBS 605 Saturday nights. Uh, with the Briscoes and Dusty and Flair, and I believe Piper was a, a, a part of Georgia at one point. Um, one memory I have of watching some Georgia Championship Wrestling from the WWE Network was uh, uh, Jake the Snake Roberts and Ronnie Garvin. When before he was Jake the Snake, and Jake the, Jake Roberts, I believe, was the TV champion, and Garvin was a virtual nobody on TV, and he pulled the he pulled the victory away from Jake yep. and earned himself an opportunity at the TV title. It was like a, you know, like a, like an upset that nobody had saw coming. I thought that was kind of cool. Um, but Georgia eventually transformed into, well, let's, let's, let's go, let's, let's go even deeper. Georgia was sold to the McMahons and well, it was sold to Jack and Jerry Briscoe. Okay. Who owned at that point? My apologies. Then they had a majority. I believe um, somebody else was involved as well, and Vince was able to get the majority from Ole Anderson. Okay. By the sale. Okay. So it was behind the scenes workings. Yep. That it happened, and uh, surprise, surprise! One Saturday morning, when Vince walks in the door and uh, tells Ole to beat it, you know. <laughs> and then, just the way the business works, I guess. Yeah, and then McMahon didn't have it for. What, longer than one year. One year. Um, the TV station Ted Turner's 
you know, it's a cable broadcast out, outlet channel for its time. It was uh, pretty prestigious to have this slot. And um, McMahon bought it with the promise of doing studio wrestling, as was accustomed with the Georgia Championship Wrestling show that had been going on with Gordon Soley. Well, Gordon Soley's not working for Vince McMahon. Um, they want to see Gordon Soley. The audience wants to see live wrestling. They don't want to see uh, you know, Big John Studd take on Joe Murdo in a squash match from Toronto or, or whatever they were running, you know, some town. They were just running all these matches that people had seen around before that were not interesting. So eventually they wanted to get the slot back, and uh, you know, Ted Turner was not happy with, with the way Vince McMahon was doing the show. It ended up a year later, uh, an, an excruciating year for some fans down in the uh, Georgia area, that Ted Turner... Uh, took McMahon and, and took an offer from Jim Crockett. Jim Crockett paid $1 million for the time slot to get the NWA Worldwide Re- or World Championship Wrestling. They kept the name um, back onto that channel because it, Georgia Championship Wrestling by Ole had taken course and run a one-hour show, I think, after or before the WWF slot because... They had wanted their studio wrestling so bad that they aired both shows. Really? Yes. They um, and they, Vince felt that was out of the, I, that, that was not within the agreement, and that's why they uh, had the falling out. Not necessarily. I think that they just he wasn't able to really contractually give what he told him he would give mm-hmm. with studio wrestling. He wasn't going down there and doing it. And uh, he's gearing up for WrestleMania at the time in '85 when he finally sold. I think he sold in May. Or June. It was a one-year contract. So, But Ole was, because he was able to start another show, they, they were so unhappy, they put a time slot with him in Georgia Championship Wrestling. And it started, I think, in December of 84. And only ran until March or April of 85. And it mm-hmm. was there was no interest for it. And that's when Turner said, okay. And he went with Crockett. And I don't know if Crockett had the money himself or Turner was a part of wanting him to get it and gave him the money or whatever had you. But McMahon... Took a took a bow out, and uh, that show on TBS ran its course for a long time. I've never seen any of them, but I I, I, I should probably go back and watch them because I heard they were pretty bad. Uh, I mean, I heard that like the 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 Southern wrestling crowds didn't they didn't reject like a Hulk Hogan, but they didn't know how to take to a Hulk Hogan because they were used to Rick you Flair. know Rick Flair and Dusty Rhodes and things like that, and you know that was obviously in the early infancy of cable and where they were used to seeing who they saw on their TV locally. They weren't used to seeing what you saw up in New York, and eventually TBS would branch off and become a bigger you know the super station eventually, and one of the first networks to really help bust cable out and 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 you know it's coming out party so um now from what i gather the crockets were in the promoting business before they bought this before they bought the nwa championship wrestling from yes from from mcmahon they had promoted um, Harlem Globetrotter, like a Harlem Globetrotter style basketball, the circus, music. music. I believe they did have a little bit of wrestling, um, but I don't know how how much or how big it was at that time. So they had some experience with wrestling, um, and I want to say I think they before they bought before they bought it back, I want to say they did have a little bit of involvement with Georgia. 
I don't know if it was from a behind-the-scenes level. They like, may have. I'm like, not particularly sure about that. But this is where they really started to gain their footing and become the second biggest organization at the time by relocating to the Carolinas. Yes, and that's um, what I can tell you about Crockett's in the Carolinas is they had a, a show down there from, uh, I think, 1978, 1979. They, they had worldwide wrestling, mm-hmm. and they had um, NWA Mid-Atlantic Wrestling. Yes. And uh, those shows are, are on the, the, the network. Yep. And, uh, but it was a smaller territory. And they had Roddy Piper, Jimmy Snuka, and some other big names on the show, Briscoes and everything else. Ricky Steamboat was there. And uh, they had run Starcade in uh, 1983 and 84 and 85. And it was picking up a lot of steam. But uh, once they got the TBS time slot and they were able to promote nationally, mm-hmm. that's when it really took off and more talent was all going there as uh, the smaller promotions started twinkling down and the, the names are starting to go into both areas. It became, uh, it became quite a hotbed for uh, wrestling down in the Carolinas, and they had the Omni in Atlanta. Yes. And that is, if though, if any of those uh, shows were ever uh, videotaped, there would be incredible importance remembered from that era, but there is no footage of any actual shows. You could say New York Garden. New York, that so much is taped and held and preserved and re-shown, but there's no Omni footage other than clips of this and clips of that. And Omni is, is famous. They used to bring in the WWF champion at times. Uh, Bob Backwood, he would fight Ric Flair at the Omni, I've title versus yeah. title. You would have a lot of things. Um, you know, Dusty was from Florida, but he'd come to Atlanta just like Dusty would go to New York. And he'd draw money. They they'd bring in some of the biggest names to go down there. So there was that was their that was their big calling card. They'd fill it out. Their, the biggest feud in um, the Omni in Atlanta was one of well, one of the biggest feuds. They're not biggest, but Buzz Sawyer, Tommy Rich. The, the last battle of Atlanta. There's, it's just you with Paul Ellering. Yes, there's, yeah. There's that that was a, a feud that carried over for a long time. That was like the and first it, like I I want to say that was like the first incarnation of like the steel cage with a roof on it. Yes. Yeah. So I mean you got that and uh you know but Crockett was now involved and they were talking about the the Carolinas and and what's going on. It all, really Starcade is what put it on the map when yep. uh, Ric Flair had uh, defeated Harley Race for the NWA Championship. Yes. Harley was the man in all of the Southern territories, the NWA territories. And uh, Ric Flair, you know, he had won the belt once in 1981, I believe. But this was the big crowning moment. Dusty. Yes. I think, yeah. And yeah, Joe Frazier. Was it Joe Frazier? I think it was at the show as a referee, or was it 84? It was 84. Joe Joe Frazier, I think it was like 84 or 85 when it was Flair and Dusty. Yes, you're right. Yeah. Exactly. One of the two years, I forget which year. For those of you that remember, please, by all means, remind me here mm-hmm. on Facebook.com forward slash kicking out it too. Uh, good yeah. stuff down there in, uh, in uh, the Carolinas. And, you know, it took off for years. And we talked about crowd reactions. Um, watch any tag team match with the Rock and Roll Express against the Midnight Express from 1985. Oh, yeah. It, it's just unbelievable to hear screaming. I, there's some footages out there of matches from cameras and you could just hear the crowd rock and roll rock a girl screaming like you said 
but when the hot tag is made, oh. you see every single person, guys, girls, leaping and jumping up and down out of Everyone's their chairs their over feet, and yeah. over while Ricky and Ro- Ricky Morton just or Robert Gibson just punches them. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah. Boom. It's it's unbelievable to see uh the connection that the Southern audience had with some of their uh their favorite wrestlers. I feel like as time went on, you know, like Greensboro was like the home for like you said, Starcade. It was a big home for like Jim Crockett promotions and eventually they kinda like br- I wouldn't say they abandoned it, but like they moved more south towards Atlanta, the Omni, yep. you know, where the famous incident with um the horseman. Oh yeah. Attacking Dusty in the cage. You thought Flair was gonna or Dusty was there to save Flair from the Russians and mm-hmm. Arn and Oli jump in. That was essentially like the formation of the four horsemen, but um it eventually grew as time went on when Jim Crockett promotions had to sell their 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 territory to Ted Turner and it became WCW and World Championship Wrestling and they still ran Greensboro and Charlotte because Flair was still part of the company but um, a lot of their focus was more in the Atlanta area with like the center stage tapings right. for WCW Saturday Night. Well, CNN Center was where uh, pretty much the offices yes. were for uh, WCW because Ted Turner owned it. So yes, it it did have to leave the Carolinas for the most part. Um, but yeah, a lot of memories were in the Carolinas from even to this day. There's 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 gonna there's not anymore, but there's going to be I think next year. Um, NWA conventions. They used to run yeah. them every year. I think it, they're being brought back for the following year. They're going to have a, an event going on. And they bring back all the names. Yeah. And I've been there. The people that come out to see these things, they they just line up and fill up a room and listen to Dusty Rhodes talk. Or, well, not now, but Magnum TA and Tully Blanchard reflect on feuds and, and Arn Anderson just to sign an autograph. So... There's so much history and it never goes away. And they actually had a Starcade down in Greensboro. Where was it in Greensboro last year? Oh, it was the it was the house show that WWE. Uh, but the people came to yeah. see it. It wasn't the greatest uh, turnout, but they had a lot of people and they're people do- were right. They're doing another one. Yep. Uh, it's going to be a lot. But they're but they're doing it's it wrong in town there, Cincinnati. With, yeah, not not yeah. going to work. Yeah, not not a uh, not a, a a big wrestling town at least for you know the the older Jim Crockett promotion NWA wrestling fans. But yeah, I mean, um, yeah, Greensboro, the big hub for it. And then eventually, like I said, Atlanta and, you know, really creating memories. Some of more of what I remember with like the center stage stuff from WCW Saturday night, still kind of keeping that studio feel that like, you know, NWA world championship wrestling had, Mm -hmm. um, but on a, a little bit larger scale, the, the, the studios was a little, was a little bit bigger. Um, I've talked about this on previous episodes before, but probably my favorite moment, two of my favorite moments from Atlanta, um, especially the center stage, a building that still gets used. Ring of Honor still runs there. WWE runs NXT there. Um, it's got like a, a, a cool intimacy about it and some character. But two of my favorite moments from that building was one, the beginning of the um, Vader Cactus Jack storyline where Vader powerbombed him on the floor. Um, and, and granted, the rest of that storyline sucked when Cactus <laughs> was lost in Cleveland and lost his memory. But The unedited f- version of that match is incredible. 
the one that never made television. Oh, really? Yes, it's a more brutal than you can imagine. Really? The yeah. same one where he did the spot with the power bomb on the floor? Correct. Really? There's an unedited version out there. Okay. All right. I'll have to go off to look for it on YouTube <laughs> or something. I mean, from what I remember as a kid, I was amazed, but like scared at the same time at what Vader was capable of doing. Like, I remember as a kid, like, I watched it on that Saturday night and he power bombed the shit out of him. And like that thud when he hit the floor. At home, I felt it in my chest, and you never. Uh, it it it's very statements like that can be very seem very cliche, but I really felt it in my chest when he hit that hard. That moment, and then, um, the moment when the Dangerous Alliance was formed. Yes. When Paulie brought everyone out, Rude and uh, Arn and Bobby Eaton and Zabisco and Stunning Steve with Medusa, I was just like, I thought I was witnessing something like really cool, you know. And those are those are I take from from it from center stage in Atlanta. Of course, you know they've run the Georgia Dome, Phillips Arena. Um, we went to a WrestleMania together. Yep, that shit show of a weekend. <laughs> we could talk about that if you like. I mean, Atlanta's got some fond memories uh, uh, for me as a wrestling fan uh, both personally and as uh, you know someone who's uh, watched it on television yeah that's a it's a very uh interesting area i think uh, joe pedicino even ran a a wrestling promotion down there oh, georgia all-star wrestling uh you know then people would would work down there uh, jake roberts is from uh georgia yeah and stone mountain yep there's so so many different people uh georgia's uh very very memorable place for a lot of uh wrestling memories that's for sure yeah absolutely i'll never forget um our uh, our foggy weekend <laughs> in, yeah. in in atlanta um spending time with uh you know uh the wwe roster at their hotel matt hardy uh, matt hardy oh god yes i remember that yeah that was a <laughs> That was quite the debacle. Some um, stories could be said, but yes, we'll keep them yeah, for another we'll, time. Yeah, we'll keep. Yeah, <laughs> we'll we'll keep that one for another time. But um, you know, nowadays, like I said, they run. Fil- I, I will say this though about Southern wrestling fans: they are very loyal and faithful to um the product. And what I mean by that is, is that you know. And I notice it with with current day WWE. Uh, Roman Reigns up north, the northeast area up here, they can't stand him for whatever reason. He's got you know, I'm not I'm not one of those that like likes to shit all over him like everyone else does. I like him for certain reasons. I can understand why people don't, but I don't think that's his fault necessarily. I think that's the way that the promotion is billing him and and making him look. Um, but. I'll never forget, like, they had the go-home Monday Night Raw from Atlanta earlier this year before WrestleMania. And they did that angle with him and Brock where, you know, he's calling out Brock because Brock's not showing up to do his job and be the champion. And they were there. They, they, they cheer the baby faces and they boo the bad guys. They don't detract like, like Toronto and Bizarro were right. in Chicago. They are very like, you know, John Cena used to get those same reactions too. They were chanting Roman at the end of that Monday night raw. And it made me, it sparked a little bit more interest in me wanting to see the match because they, they finally were able to creatively get to the point where they wanted to get to. But it just it, it, I've said this for many years. Southern wrestling fans, they stick to what they know. Cheer the good guys, boo the bad guys. And that was just an example of something that 
you know, I saw and I've noticed over the years, just with, with, with most wrestling, you really won't see them detract and, 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 and go against the grain, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But I uh, totally agree with that. I've seen it many times. Yeah. As, uh, we, we, we're, we're rounding out this trip here. We're ending our, our, our second road trip here and kicking out at two with uh, uh, Tampa area, Florida, oh. Dusty Roads, Eddie Graham. We're going to go to the panhandle yeah, at the end to, of the show. Go to the panhandles. We're going we're gonna to end <laughs> in the Sunshine State and talk a little bit about uh, you know Dusty Roads and his impact and, uh, and, and what, you know, Florida Championship Wrestling in the Tampa area had on the business. Well, Eddie Graham was a major part of that. He was the uh, the promoter, and he probably, they tell you, he's the greatest matchmaker of all time. Everybody that worked down there will swear by that, and uh, he he had its moments. He had His son Mike was involved in the business as well, and he was, when he was alive, he used to have some stories ridiculous or some aspects but uh florida wrestling uh the grams were very close with dusty and, and dusty became a big name when he turned uh uh baby face after a cage match and he got attacked holy moly did he take in popularity yeah and he was the golden goose for a number of years from the 70s on up and the people that had gone through florida the few with them like blackjack mulligan and and uh there's you know harley race and the briscoes would always be down there there was a lot of things that used to happen. The, the tapings were mostly in the Hollywood Sportatorium, I believe. Okay. Is yeah. that where they taped the, the show? or The Armory? I want to say it was maybe like the Tampa Armory. Yeah, it was, it was like a Tampa Armory, and then the, they used to run the Sportatorium down there. Yeah. And they'd run Lakeland and a few other towns. And they, uh, they, they would draw people. And a lot of wrestlers like to go down there because it was summer vacation. Yep. Uh, who who wants to be up north? Look at us now. It's getting cold. Yeah. I want to go down south myself. I'll go wrestle for six months down for uh, Eddie Graham. Yeah. Then I'll go out of here. Hopefully, I'll get a contract somewhere else and, yeah. and make money. So it was a it was a fun fun place for everybody to be. Um, you know, Rick Rude went down there. Percy Pringle became a name. Oliver Humperdinck was he was a, a guy that used to live down I think in uh, Key West, and he or at least he ended up down there. And he used to always be a part of, of the Florida area. area. Kevin Sullivan. Sullivan. Um, he's from the, the islands down there, Sanibel Island area or whatever. Yep. Down, down, Isle Morada. Is that what it's called? I'm not sure. But um, it's one, I went through it and I was like, oh, this is where Kevin lives. Yeah. Taskmaster. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, look at the angles that ran. You don't see the things that Sullivan did going and calling the Purple Haze in the ocean and yeah. and doing the dark side and the sinister, sinister uh, things. And those were not things that you ever expect to see on television uh grabbing nancy sullivan his wife by the hair and throwing her around and putting a snake on people and sick sick and twisted stuff yeah he kind of brought that dark side element to it before you know we what we see today with you know the the current day with like undertaker and things like that but yeah he kind of brought that you know that that dark creepy element the promotion too was, was was primarily a florida territory and it was covered everywhere in Florida. So when it went on the road, it went to different towns. It drew because the places they went to were very close. They were within a couple hours. Because mm-hmm. Florida's not that big. But they ended up going to a lot of places that, that drew a lot of money. Yep. And they had the names for it. And they, they had some great, great turnouts. They even ran some stadium shows as well. Really? Whereabouts? Um, I believe that there was a, a match with Billy Graham and Harley Race. 
outdoors. Title versus title. No kidding. And that was in Florida. I wow, forgot. Okay. I forgot what building it was. You know, it also was in. I think it was in Florida. You could probably confirm this. The night that uh, Bruiser Brody shot on Lex Luger in Hell the steel yeah. cage, Lakeland, Florida. I was believe. it Lakeland? Okay. I think it was. Um, Luger was leaving, and uh, you must know the story. He was getting a big head in the locker room. And he didn't want to put Brody over, I don't think. If I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong. I don't know the dispute. I th- I've heard one story that I think Brody was upset because Luger was too green and he couldn't. He had trouble working with him in the cage or something. Well, Luger was definitely leaving. This was going to be okay. one of his last matches, and he was... There was a dispute of some kind. He was he making just... it known that he was getting a great contract to wrestle on television for the and it could be a horseman everything else or oh, this whatever right was before he left so the head was it. big and brody was going to straighten that one right out <laughs> and uh the match was not going so good and that just infuriated even more of what brody decided to do and that was not sell yeah and no matter what luger did brody just stood there and looked at him and didn't he like get up and just walk out of the cage too if i'm not mistaken yeah luger just he punched him about five times more after he saw this look, and he wasn't even touching Brody because he was afraid now that if he even connected in any sort of way that Brody would shoot on him. So Luger was just hitting his hair and kind of making the breeze go by and looking yeah. like, and he just looked at him, turned around as fast as he could without doing it fast. He casually walked out of the cage quickly <laughs> <laughs> over the top rope, grabbed to the floor, and strutted out of the building. Wow. <laughs> Wow, I think I've seen a video of that before yeah. on YouTube. I think it's out there on YouTube if you're ever looking for Brody walking out on Luke. Bill Alfonso was a referee for that. He's talked about it a few times as well. Um, just one of those moments in wrestling that, you know, without a video camera, that story doesn't do anything for you. Yeah, it's nothing. But it's out there. Wow. And it's amazing. I've seen it. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the the, the Florida territory um, is – Highly regarded for the involvement that you know Dusty Rhodes had, but moments like that is 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 something that I like to talk about. Like you said, like if it wasn't for a video camera, nobody would give a shit about it. But mm-hmm. it's it's pretty cool that you know that, that that we can talk about moments like that in Florida. And then in more recent years, uh, we went to another WrestleMania in Florida. Probably it's my favorite WrestleMania. Uh, I attended uh, was in uh, in Miami. It was a lot of just to me. I just thought like the whole weekend was just a fun weekend in general. That was the weekend where uh, you and I and 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 my brothers we uh, we, we we took every uh, every wrestler that we could think of and their finishing move, and we tried to turn it into um, titles for a a, a porno movie. <laughs> Which may yeah. be a future episode of Kicking Out of Two. Oh, we might have yeah. to go back and forth, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> talk about Lord Humongous. That's right. <laughs> and the it, Pearl River Plunge. Yep. <laughs> you got to understand, though, it's uh, after a night of going out and having a few drinks. Yeah. And it's four in the morning, yes. and you're all laying on the floor in the hotel room because you're too cheap to have, uh, you know, enough beds for everybody. There's four of us in there, and... And, we got uh, the travel, the WrestleMania travel package. Yeah. They only came with two. And you can't sleep, so <laughs> the best thing to do is to keep everybody up laughing till the sun rises, and and talk about you know the, <laughs> all the all the names that would come through, all the sexual innuendos yep. that we turned every former professional wrestler, past and present. Um, let's let's uh, let, let's circle. 
let's circle the wagons here and, and close this out, you know, uh, with, with, with present day. Um, and, you know, you said Lakeland, Florida, Orlando yeah, being Orlando, a, 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 a big city now for, for WWE. Uh, you could say their second home. Uh, the performance center is there. They, uh, they, they, they film NXT at, at Full Sail University. They filmed the May Young tournament there. They had the Cruiserweight tournament there a couple of years ago. Uh, TNA at one point had uh, a run at Universal Studios for a number of years. Uh, Orlando definitely really making its mark on the wrestling business current day. Yes, uh, TNA had, had pretty much been in that studio in Universal for a long time. They switched a few others here and there, but still remained in the park, nope. drawing the free audience. And uh, you know, then WWE, they started doing uh, down in FCW. They started doing uh, stuff down there, and that turned into Orlando when they built the Performance Center. And they moved everybody out of that location, and they had Steve Kern as the trainer. They, they replaced him with Bill DeMott, and they went down to Florida in Orlando. And he was, you know, the Performance Center is going strong. It's probably one of the biggest assets that the business has right now. Like it or, or not, they're still producing some of the most talented wrestlers. Yeah. And not only producing the most talented wrestlers, but they get the most talented wrestlers because oh, yeah. they stopped doing that notion where we're just going to cherry pick all the athletes that are young and they're playing different sports and want them to be a professional wrestler. They're actually going out now and getting the top talent and just giving them a little bit of tweak before they put them onto the big stage. Um, you know, you look at Shinsuke Nakamura, AJ Styles, for example, in the last few years with Samoa Joe. They were big stars. Yeah. They were all big stars everywhere they were. Yeah. But... They went through the NXT, well, AJ did not, but Shinsuke went through the NXT system because he needed to know how to stand in front of a camera. Yep. He needed to know timing. He needed to know how to you know, present himself in a commercial break. He needed to know all the aspects, uh, interview, what to say, how to do it in a certain time frame. It's a teach to yep. anybody, no matter who you are. And that school is doing it with uh, names and rookies and all kinds of people. So... Um, that is, there's actually rumors now because of the success of the Performance Center in Orlando that they're going to actually have another one pop up. They're in the consideration of building them in different areas yep. to to work on talent around those neighborhoods because not everybody could just be in Florida. They're trying to, from what I understand, it sounds like they're trying to create their their own territory system within the WWE umbrella. You know, with the with the. The, the the NXT UK brand that they've just developed. Um, eventually, they want to go to you know South America, uh, Japan. Uh, they want to you know have these NXT developmental territories, so to speak, all over the world. There's even been talk of doing a performance center in the UK, and uh, Johnny Saint. Uh, who's you know now working for for WWE over at the 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 UK brand? He's going to head up. The, the rumor is they want to have him head up that that new performance center. But let me not forget to mention that before WWE and TNA were using Orlando and the theme park and the the area as a central hub for their 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 television production, WCW. Yep. Ran Disney MGM Studios for quite some time. The rotating ring. That's right on the on the on the circle. We were talking about that recently <laughs> on the, on the, on an episode of Kicking Out It too. Yeah, I mean the um, 
it was it was convenient for the wrestlers in a sense that you know they could they could work like one or two days and they film like 12 weeks of TV yep. or something and then they get all this and time And they do the off, work but... during the daytime too. They, don't, yeah. they get the nights to themselves because yeah, they... they're teeping all day while, while the people are in the park. Yeah, they can go to the park, you know, do whatever they want to do with their families and shit like that. So, I mean, Orlando is, is more so than anything has had, I wouldn't say a rich history, but a history of, of, of being a, a, a comfortable spot to, uh, to, to, to produce professional wrestling and, like I said, current day WWE Orlando is the second home for that company. All right. Um, There's think, also a possibility of a Hall of Fame, if ever developed by WWE, to be in Orlando. That's probably the leading role. I've, I've heard something about that with, like, um, like uh, a spot at, like, uh, the Universal City Walk. Yes. Uh, being, a, like, a place like that um, as part of Universal Studios. I mean, uh my brother Justin and I, we've 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 gone back and forth and talked about stuff, and he's even said that, um, you know, kick kick TNA out or Impact or whatever they are, because they they seem to be moving to Canada, yep. and uh, you know, doing actually pretty decent over there, and let those uh, let let the two hundred five guys, you know, the two hundred five live guys work in like a studio format, um, and and not in front of a, a larger audience after SmackDown had already aired and most of the audience has left. Let them go in you know a, a smaller setting where right. those fans could appreciate that more. And put a woman's show out there too while they're at it. They could it, do both. They could, yeah. I mean, they, they have the talent for it, and you know, it's just a matter of I guess you know the timing and the money. Obviously, it's going to happen. It's going to happen right where we left off at the end of our show down in florida yep no you're you're absolutely right i i do think that you know orlando they they've they've built opportunities for themselves um in that city with working at full sale it wouldn't surprise me if they did do something more at the soundstage at universal um they are the walt disney of professional wrestling and with this new television deal with fox disney bought out fox it wouldn't surprise me if they did do something with disney on a regular basis as a part of an attraction at their at one of their theme parks i could definitely see it so i guess you could say orlando is slowly at least in our minds slowly becoming a bigger wrestling city than it was before as we wrap this up on here on this uh this this road trip this uh our, our famous wrestling cities i'd like to thank you bill for taking the time to uh to to take a stroll down memory lane in a geographic sense and talk about some of your uh, your most memorable moments from these particular cities has been pretty cool. Well, Dave, he's uh, he's pulling over and he's letting me out the door. We've been on quite a journey. Yes, uh, we have. But uh, it's good talking about everything that uh, is going on out there. And you could go on and on and on because there's so much stuff that has happened all over the United States and so many memories that we could share with anyone. 